Good evening. This is Rob Carmichael, and welcome to another Mainly Matters podcast on leadership, where we focus on outstanding leaders and business professionals throughout Maine to better understand the traits and characteristics that have enabled them to be successful. And I certainly hope by sharing these stories, we might educate and inspire our listeners who want to become successful leaders and who want to make a difference in whatever occupation they're involved in. And today we have one of Maine's finest leaders, uh, someone who broke new ground when she became the first female Brigadier General in the Maine Army National Guard. And she's a veteran of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan as a commander of a combat support battalion. Over there, I'm pleased to welcome Brigadier General Retired Diane Dunn to today's Mainly Matters podcast. Welcome, Diane. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Well, Diane is currently the senior advisor to the president of the University of Maine for special initiatives, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. And as I mentioned, she's recently retired uh, as of, uh, what was it, two weeks ago, I think, went down to the uh, the retirement ceremony. Or actually, were you officially retired prior to that? And that's when the ceremony- 31 December. 31 right. December, right. That's right. I thought it was earlier, but uh, mm-hmm. she had a wonderful- Wonderful uh, retirement ceremony uh, post her official date uh, with family, friends, and former colleagues, and and I was fortunate to be able to go down and see that. It's such a a rewarding um, and real tribute to somebody who served for 33 years in the military. So I'm going to just start by uh, going – her bio for everybody out there that's listening. If I were to go through the bio, you'd probably be exhausted by the time I went through it. She has one of the most extensive and diverse backgrounds. And it's hard for me to believe as I as I read through it and familiarize myself with it, that you've packed all that into a very short amount of time. Uh, and uh, so I... I uh, I'm going to go through some of the real highlights, and there are a lot of lot of highlights in here. But I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the the highlights that I think would be interesting, the most interesting to our listeners. First of all, I want to mention that Diane has a Master of Public Administration from the University of Maine and a Master's of Strategic Studies from the United States Army War College that she attended uh, and graduated in 2009. She has a BA in Psychology from uh, is it Houghton College? Is that how you pronounce it? Houghton College. Houghton College in Houghton, New York. Um, And her, as I mentioned, her most recent assignment that we'll talk more about is a a senior advisor to the president, University of Maine for Special Initiatives. She spent time as uh, working uh, as a deputy commanding general on active duty in uh, San Antonio with the uh, U.S. Army North, the Fifth Army, in uh, Defense Support of Civil Authorities, uh, a job down there that we'll talk about as well. She was the assistant Adjutant General for the Army and the Maine Army National Guard, a position that I was fortunate to hold at one point in time, and that was her her assignment uh, when she retired. And uh, she was a chief of staff. She also had an assignment uh, out at uh, Colorado Springs as an exercise program branch chief. So she had an opportunity to do a tour, again, on active duty out in Colorado Springs. I mentioned that she was a commander. She's been a commander of a number of different organizations in the military. Uh, her combat c- command was in uh, Afghanistan as commander of the 286 Combat Sustainment Support Battalion. So she, again, she's had a lot of assignments. I, she was assistant professor of military science for uh, 
ROTC at the University of Maine, a stint up there that I know she enjoyed very, very much. And some other assignments that I think will be interesting, and I'm going to ask her about how, how this all blends into how, how it approached her leadership development and impacted her her roles throughout her career. But she was a, a, a case manager for community health and counseling one time in her career. She also, she and her husband also uh, had a, um, a mortgage company. Uh, they were owners of Moosehead Mortgage, where she worked uh, in that business and also a human resource operations officer for Acadia Mortgage. So as I mentioned, a variety of, of occupations and variety of experience that culminated uh, when she retired from the military and entered a new new career with the University of Maine. So, Diane, first of all, you're, you're from Western Maine originally? I was born in Farmington. Farmington. Good old Farmington, Maine. Farmington, right. Maine. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, as we mentioned, you went to Houghton College. What what led you to Houghton and, and ROTC out there? So, I um, was educated in the J school system and then Lewiston. And when I was a freshman in high school, my mom remarried and moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota. So the first person that I met in high school out there happened to be a pastor's daughter, and we became really good friends. And fast forward to our junior year when it was time to do the college search, and her mom took her and I and another friend on the college tour, and uh, Houghton happened to be one. It was affiliated with the Wesleyan Church, so we visited one in Marion, Indiana, and uh, one in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. So those were the three locations that we picked um, to visit. And uh, two of us chose Houghton and my friend uh, chose Marion because she wanted to study nursing. Interesting. So I chose Houghton because um, lots of different reasons, but it was a real small private Christian liberal arts school and it was back east um, from Minneapolis. And so I thought that might afford me an opportunity to, to get back to Maine and be closer to family. Oh, wonderful. And you, and you, uh, when you were there, did you start ROTC as a freshman or was that later on? The It was my, I believe my sophomore year. So again, um, one of my um, college housemates' brother was uh, an MS3, so a junior at the time in our cross-enrolled program that we had at Houghton. Houghton was a satellite program for St. Bonaventure University. Oh, okay. And so he was like this, the top, MS3 junior cadet and was recruiting students to attend the leadership lab and asked and invited me. And I went to the leadership lab and really loved it and signed up for the course. And uh, then I had the opportunity to go to the basic course, which was for someone who didn't have prior service, did that between my sophomore and junior year. And uh, interesting enough, was offered a two-year scholarship at that point, which was very pivotal because I did not have a way to continue my education. I had no resources when I showed up at Houghton College. Um, I did play basketball for two years, um, and the financial aid director was also the assistant basketball coach. So he worked some magic for a year or so. Um, and then, uh, I, you know, I just truly believe it was the path that I was supposed to be on. And the ROTC scholarship helped um, me get through the final two years. 
you know, had you, uh, you know, like a lot of us, and, and I talked with uh, Todd Schultz in one of the last podcasts, and he had a very similar experience that that, that I had from the sense of not really a, a you know a long time lifelong passion to serve in the military. It was something that that sort of came about. Uh, as a result of opportunities for education, your your experience with ROTC is is the same as mine. I went to the basic course, got out of the basic course, and received a scholarship. And I thought, well, I can do anything for four years, and <laughs> and so that started me on my way. But did you well, did you have a passion a bit, for that? It was a, mine was even a little bit more short sighted because I didn't really understand, truly appreciate the um, the what's next. It wasn't that I had any issue with that, but I just really never, you know, considered the fact that, you know, this was potentially be a career. Um, I love the physical challenge of what uh, the basic camp offered, um, the camaraderie and the, you know, mental challenges. So there was just a lot of the activities, um, and that sounds a little you know, campish, but <laughs> it wasn't, they weren't like arts and crafts, right, but right. Um, the activities or the challenges that I was able to participate in the physical challenges. Um, it was a nice transition from basketball. Uh, I was not def- definitely not a star player. We have a very small school, pretty much anyone can play. I had played all the way through, you know, from elementary school all the way up through high school. So, um, I, I was able to be physically active with ROTC. And I think that was really the biggest draw. And then um, a lot of the rest of the leadership and the, you know, time management, stress management, all the classes that they teach uh, very early on were very uh, foundational and helpful for me at that point in my life. So I was really looking just, you know, at that, short period of time that was right in front of me. And it was probably even after I graduated and came back to Maine and made the phone call that, Hey, I'm a second Lieutenant. I live here and you know, I need to join the guard. Um, did I really fully understand the opportunities that i then had, um, at my disposal? And when many of us that, that played sports, what I, what I've said to other people is that I was I was kind of a jock, I guess you'd back in the day they call us jocks and with that came a lot of opportunities to display leadership. Did you find that you had that inclination from being a basketball player and being involved in those things? I, I think so. I think the competitive spirit that, you know, is typical for most athletes, um, that desire to, you know, see how many, you know sprints you can do up and down the basketball court and, you know, be the first or, you know, be the last one to quit. Um, I I do really believe that that grit uh, that is developed through athletics is very transferable to, you know, um, many of the things that you get challenged to do as a part of ROTC. Yes, uh, definitely. That's exactly what I found. Now you, 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 so you came back to you came to Maine, and when you graduated, you're a what we call uh, for our, our audience a, a traditional guard yes. person at the time, and yes. so you you had to get a a, a job a right job. off the bat. And was <laughs> was that the community health and counseling 
Yes. Yeah. So with my undergraduate in psych, again, <laughs> you look back on it and you're like, what was I thinking? And <laughs> the fact, the fact was I wasn't, I was just, you know, I really always thought I was going to be a, a vet and um, just like many other freshman college students, bio 101 really wasn't for me. And so I quickly transitioned from the hard sciences to the soft sciences and uh, found a niche there. And I really liked psychology. And one of my internships that I had done while I was at Houghton um, sort of led me to different uh, options when I came back to Maine and and how I was exploring how I thought I would use that um, degree. And fortunately, had the opportunity to interview at Community Health and Counseling, uh, working in the adult mental health field and uh, providing aftercare to people that had been uh, discharged from the uh, mental health institute at the time. And that just led to all kinds of other opportunities, a really great organization to work for, especially early on in my career. Got great supervision, great professional development, peer support, supervisory support. And uh, that balanced with what I was doing in the military was just really a great fit. And and I've got to believe that a lot of that background um, stuck with you and and came to uh, really benefit your assignments down the road in many different ways, I'm sure. I, I believe so. The clinical supervision that you are required to have in those type of positions was hugely valuable to me as a person. Uh, my supervisor was very helpful in developing, you know, me as an individual and obviously me as a, at the, you know, it wasn't very long and I was in a supervisory role. And so she was helping to develop, you know, those supervisory skills that, again, um, were also being um, grown and developed as a traditional guardsman. And so when you first started in the guard in Maine, uh, your first assignment, was that the uh, the 286 or was that? Well, really, it goes all the way back to the 3620th, which was the movement control team. Yeah. Right. And uh, as an AG officer, so I'm not really sure, you know, um, how that all came to be, but that was where the vacancy was. I was there for a very short period of time. I also had a stint in the 121st public affairs detachment um, early on. And then I think I went to what was troop command as an S1, so administrative officer. Um, I remember at one point, General Libby said, why Why is it that every unit you've been in has, you know, um, the flag has folded. <laughs> <laughs> There's a message there, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I guess I can, uh, he and I will laugh about that now that, uh, you know, it seemed to work out okay. Well, you, in your, your first full time, you, you left, uh, eventually left uh, community health and counseling and uh, took a full-time job into, was that the assistant professor of military science position or was there a position? Before? No, it was a training officer. It was a training officer position. Okay. Training officer, right. Absolutely. So Dan Goodhart uh, called me up while I was working at community health and counseling. And he told me that the position was posted and that he thought I should apply for it. Uh, I believe that he applied for it too, which was interesting. And as did some other folks that were, um, you know, had risen to the top later on in, in our careers. But um, 
so it, again, great opportunity. I knew nothing about the full-time force. I knew nothing about being a training officer. Um, but I learned probably the most in that uh, position as uh, having the opportunity to have all the different units that uh, at that time you had to understand all of their, you know, um, key metrics and their mission and how it all came together to, to, you know, ensure that we were building training plans that were going to be purposeful and maintain readiness. And, and people, I don't think understand that, that aren't familiar with the guard, that the full-time staff is a smaller component of the overall national guard in any state. And in the full-time staff is responsible for, for all of those things that allow traditional guardsmen and women to come in, do the training and uh, do the things necessary in that short amount of time that they have to do it. So part of that full-time staff is all the logistics, the training, the preparation and, and uh, the personnel, all of that stuff that there's a core group. Absolutely. And at that time we had, you know, all the different, um, you know, double A, which uh, again, probably not common for, uh, you know, non-military people to understand the double A units. So those smaller units that um, were not uh, linked to a parent unit in state. And so as a training officer for, you know, a transportation company and medical company, aviation units and, uh, you know, probably the band and the infantry company had to understand all of those uh, MOSs and the um, training requirements. And, you know, when you have to, as a, at the time I would, I don't remember, I was a quartermaster. um, So, but to learn the aviation language and understand the requirements for RL progression um, and, you know, how to be able to quantify that and measure that in, you know, quarterly training meetings to commanders as a training officer. Um, it, again, very helpful for me to have to know that early on in my career. And this is all the background. You know, we, we get to the point where you you are commanding the Army National Guard, but this is all the sort of background that's you're building upon to be able to understand and make those decisions at the strategic level when you you eventually became the commander of the Army National Guard. And you know, the next assignment that I just want to highlight is your, your professor of military science. You were uh, up at the University of Maine with the ROTC program. What did you take away from that assignment? Well, I think it's important to note that, you know, that assignment was given to me by you. So <laughs> thank you. Remember. Thank you very much. I remember the <laughs> breakfast very well. That's right. Um, so guess what? You're going to the university. Um, and I absolutely, when, you know, preparing for this, that was one of the questions, you know, what, what were one of your, you know, favorite or most pivotal assignments? And definitely I will always say that ROTS, ROTC assignment was very um just so foundational for me as an individual and um, as a leader uh, for so many different reasons. But I look back on it now and the history that uh, I was able to uh, build with young, you know, college freshmen, uh, one of which, you know, I think it's 20, 20 years later, 
So an individual who was an MS1, a freshman in my ROTC class is now the APMS, the Assistant Professor of Military Science there at the University of Maine, and is the cadre member for my son, who's a student. That's amazing. So it's just such a wonderful story to be able to to know the cadets that have come through that program, to see them grow and develop, to be a part of it, and and to learn and to develop, you know, as as a leader myself. Um, I think one of the things that people might not um, fully appreciate from an ROTC cadre opportunity at a public university, two things that, you know, yes, you might be in the military, but you're not necessarily a trained faculty member, but you quickly become one. And so that has interesting connections and threads that I can now pull on uh, 20 years later. And the other thing is, you know, there's a lot of tactics that are a part of the MS uh, one and two uh, freshman and junior uh, sophomore year that, uh, you know, you have to, you know, many of the infantry people understand the rebluing, so to speak, of, you know, understanding the basic troop leading procedures. And so, yes, I had learned those as a cadet uh, enough to survive, you know, and get commissioned, but not having been an infantry officer. Uh, it was definitely not, you know, top of mind or, um, you know, memory skills that I had. So I had to, you know, retrain myself and, and make sure that I understood those requirements in order to transfer that to the cadets. And again, I think that was very helpful for me as a leader and as a future commander to have those experiences and opportunities at that point. And the exactly the uh, the ability to shape uh, help shape young students who are embarking just as we did in ROTC mm-hmm. has to be a very rewarding rewarding assignment. And you you left there. You did a, a stint at the uh, the training institute uh, in the Maine National Guard. Then you took um, you took a break from the full time. I did. I did. Well, you know, and work-life balance uh, is an important thing. And and uh, I think a lot of people second-guess that decision. And it was definitely a tough one to make. But my family was at a point where that was, um, it, it was needed for me to be present. Um, my daughter was a freshman, I think, um, not yet driving, hockey player. You know, there was just a lot of moving pieces with the kids. Um, had three children at that point. And um, it was it was a time for me to, to focus on the family and, and give back um, to them and to, to my husband, who was busy um, developing, you know, the mortgage business. And it, it worked out well. I would do it all over again. And that's, you know, that's something that I think, you know, when I started looking at, at how to structure this and, and discuss your career, because as I said, it's so diverse and and you packed so much into it. Those of us from a male perspective uh, don't necessarily have that, to, that the same sort of, of challenges that a, a female officer has, particularly female officer rising through the ranks that that uh, that you all have to deal with, and I think over the years we become more cognizant about it um, as as we, you know, as more women are in the military, uh, more women are in senior positions and 
business, it's a whole different dynamic that I don't think we necessarily appreciate as much or appreciated as much back then. I definitely think at that point in time, um, it was not a norm for people to have the same level of appreciation and understanding as we do today. So that's a good thing. We've seen growth and development on, you know, um, roles and expectations. I never saw myself as, you know, a female officer or having unique challenges. I just saw myself as, you know, um, a guard guard person with a family, Mm -hmm. um, and wanting to do, you know, the best for both organizations. Uh, I call my family an organization, um, (laughs) because they are, but, um, I think that, you, you know, over the years, I, well, I did my war college paper on women as strategic leaders and, through that research, I found that that's, you know, obviously it's still a, an issue and a challenge today, not only in the military, but I think, you know, even in, in business is women particularly or um, anyone who's trying to have a family at at that point in time that there are some tough choices to make and whether or not you leave the workforce um, to do that or in at the time, it was called off-ramping, right? There were a lot of um, women in the military that were leaving at that, you know, eight-year mark, typically right around the captain time to uh, build their families. And the challenge was getting them back. And even to this day, I know there's a lot of research and studies that try to figure out the best uh, talent management dynamics to allow people to you know, go back and forth between active duty, reserve component, uh, full-time, part-time, have, you know, take a break, um, do something different, work in industry, have families and and rotate back in. Um, And and so that's a, you know, talent management, as you know, in what you do every day is, is, and then the joys of COVID have taught us all kinds of new things about talent management. But that, at that point in time, you know, I am not a believer that you can't do something that you don't see someone doing. Um, otherwise, I would not be where I am today. Um, but I, I felt that it was possible. And I had great support um, to be able to do family and military service. Um, and maybe it wasn't the typical path that everyone would pay, take, but it worked for our family worked, at the time. And it worked out for sure. It, it certainly right. did. And it, it, and it certainly was, you know, one of the notes that I had down here was talk about the challenges as a working mother, spouse, and female in the military. How, you know, how did you, how did you balance all of mm-hmm. those things that, uh, again, those of us from the male perspective don't necessarily keep it, it the top of mind. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as a logistician, you just, <laughs> you just, you just plan, right? Um, I, I always used to say back then, um, parenting it teaches you everything you need to be a leader, right? Cause you, you've got, you know, whether or not you're filling out those beginning of the school year forms and getting them back in or making sure that kids have the, you know, 
sneakers that they need for gym class or lunches or after school activities. And, you know, it's just a logistics nightmare um, <laughs> for for running a family. It's multitasking and for sure. It's multitasking. And so I just tried to figure out the the skills that had been taught on, you know, the backwards planning and having a, you know, uh, time management and having a good calendar. So those days of being a training officer in the 30, 60, 90 day calendar um, and how you backwards plan and how you add the resources that you need uh, to make your plan successful, you know, the skills are transferable as, as far as I'm concerned. And and it takes a a village, so to speak, you know, the cliche, uh, you you know, you've got, uh, as you you mentioned in your retirement ceremony, uh, Jim's been a a great partner, your kids, your wonderful three kids have been part of that. But you, you weren't just a typical uh, working mom. I mean, you guys have horses, you have an active, you know, Jim has an active business that way. And, and you're a hockey, you're a hockey mom. And we all, those of us that haven't been in hockey, but know people in hockey know how time consuming that is as well. Right. So you busy. I do. I, you know, and it is very important to speak about the role of the family and, and the extended family. And we are very blessed to be here in Maine. And so, you know, even before being full-time, um, and he was working in law enforcement and doing shift work, there were Friday nights that I would leave Bangor and drive to the Augusta area with the kids, uh, just two at a time, and drop them at my aunts or my grandparents or my mother-in-law and, you know, um, get them settled in and go off to drill on Saturday morning, come back Saturday night, you know, maybe have dinner with them and then go back to drill, come back Sunday night pick them up, drive back to Bangor and go to work the next day. Um, You know, so it was because of those family members that were always available to assist, even when the kids were sick, you know, um, and and that helped us to be able to do our careers. And I took great note of that when we were in Colorado, because that was the first time we were ever away from, you know, our immediate and our extended family. And there was one time that Jim had to go away for a business trip and I was had to go TDY. And so we had two of the kids with us out there. And yes, our middle one was a little bit older, but it was she wasn't old enough that we were going to leave her, you know, um, at home. So fortunately enough, in the way that the military works, that um, one of the cadre members who had been on staff with me at the University of Maine just happened to be in an assignment in Colorado Springs at the time. And he and I and Jim and the kids had, you know, done some social events and his wife was, um, you know, a great family friend from being in Maine and they were kind enough to come to our house and watch the kids while we were gone. Um, And so those are, it's very common in the military communities to, you know, uh, rely on other military families for situations like that. Um, but again, being in Maine and being in the guard and having our immediately immediate family available was something that we had taken to, for granted until we were away. Yeah, I, I know what you mean about the the active duty piece of it. Having spent six years, understand that community; those people all understand what everybody's going through, and then that most of them don't have family right. nearby, so uh, they're all in the same boat, and, and there is a camaraderie that way and people willing to help out. Now, 
you you eventually came back. Uh, you took command of the the two eighty six combat sustainment support battalion. Let's talk about your command in Afghanistan. Uh, well, if you it, just phenomenal, you know, and and not a lot of people say that about a combat deployment, but um, the fact that we got to do our mission uh, and we were building out the logistics for eight different smaller uh, company size bases during the surge. So when we got to Afghanistan and when we got to Kandahar, I think there were about 8,000 people supported in Kandahar proper, uh, obviously all NATO forces and um, our brigade headquarters was up in Bagram. But we grew that area, um, the RC South, with one sustainment battalion from 8,000, we were supporting 8,000 to 22,000 while we were there. So it was significant buildup of food, ammunition, repair parts, um, you know, class four. So all the construction material, all the classes in supply, not only did we have to bring into Kandahar, but then we had to um, reconfigure and line haul uh, to eight different locations. And you had uh, seven commanders and commanded over a, hundred, a thousand soldiers during that during that time, correct? The same size as my brigade when I was in brigade command, and that wasn't combat. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we our brigade commander relied on us a lot. Um, I, I I still you know chat with him frequently, get to visit with him. He's retired in Kansas. Um, he. Uh, really loved the 286. He loved the main work ethic. He knew that there was no job that we couldn't get done and that we would do it in a timely fashion and very successfully. So there were a lot of missions that came our way, much to the you know, frustration of some of the staff. And um, I, I learned some great staff uh, command, but staff lessons there after the fact, because you know, folks will tell you things after like, you know, we were so mad that you wouldn't say no to him. And you, you know, put a lot of pressure on us as a staff, but it was because of the trust and, and um, great working relationships. They, the, you know, other units were very envious of the long-term working relationships that we had as a staff. Um, you know, the XO and I um, had worked together for 20 years. So, mm -hmm. You know, and, and again, for people that uh, are not aware, our listeners are not aware that the, the, the army can't go to war without the National Guard. You know, those that, that are older may remember the National Guard in the 60s or the 70s and had this sort of perspective about what the Guard was, but it, it certainly changed. It, it, Desert Storm and, and the Gulf War and all the way up through, we've, we heard it with many of our units the same sorts of things that you're saying about uh, how well you did and how well respected they were from what they did, whether it was the aviation unit, the 112th and, and their operations, the engineers. And, uh, you know, people just don't realize that the army needs the quality and the work ethic that goes with the national guard. Absolutely. You know, the, the main soldiers forever and always live up to the state motto of, year ago and and leading in everything that they do and the you know the echelons above whatever unit that is there for Maine 
quickly realize the talents, the resources, the ingenuity of the the main folks and the commitment to getting the mission done and the professionalism. So, uh, you know, it's an honor to have been a part with, of that group, to serve with that group and to know uh, what a great job that they did. And how would you descri- describe your leadership style? Uh, it, well, it, it always evolving. I think that's the one thing that I think is important as an individual and, you know, as, as a human that our, our task in life is to grow and develop. And I look back on my leadership style early on, you know, we all have taken some type of personality inventory and as a psych major, I definitely did that and learned very on early on as a Myers-Briggs um, that I was an ESTJ. Um, and so, you know, pretty extroverted, not, not shy and not, you know, um, not going to sit still very long, jump into uh, things and willing to take risks. But there's some challenges that come with that, that, you know, with maturity, you learn that maybe, you know, being extroverted isn't always the greatest. Um, and I, I would say the one skill that I have worked the hardest on uh, to develop as a as a leader is to be more aware of those that I'm leading and their needs and their learning styles. Um, So as an individual um, with the personality traits that I have, I didn't need any reinforcement. I didn't need any, you know, attaboys or anything like that. I was competing with myself to to do better every single day. And um, so... Uh, you know, any praise, it it really didn't matter. Um, But there are people that need that. And so that was important for me to learn that being aware of other people's needs, um, not only is it very important, but it's critical to the mission and being able to support other leaders and, and what they need along the way. And communication is, is obviously the key, um, providing clear, direct communication, but understanding and appreciating other personality types, I think is, is the most important thing and rounding your team out with, uh, people that have the strengths that you don't have and being okay, um, you know, with, other people having strengths that balance out the entire team. Absolutely. And one of the things that, you know, it sounds a lot like what you're describing in some ways is that is a term that's very popular now in leadership is, is empathetic leadership Mm -hmm. and how important that is for successful leaders Um, in in today's world, but in, in any, any situation. Uh, you so you uh, I just want to touch on another position you had out in Colorado Springs. So you you I, I, it looks like when you got back from Afghanistan or sometime around that that uh, time mm-hmm. you, you were out in Colorado Springs. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was a quick turnaround. Actually, um, we weren't really sure what I was going to do because I had been. Let's see. After. So like you said, I, I left the full-time force in 2005 after my ROTC assignment. Um, and then in 2007, I think they called and said, Hey, can you come help at the RTI? So 
was like, oh, just, you know, not full time. And so I was able to do that. And then the call came to take the battalion to Afghanistan and was put on orders. Um, I, again, I was like, okay, well, I said, are you sure? Because I had given, gotten credit, you know, for battalion command for the RTI. And they're like, no, we, we want you to, to do this. So I came on for about a year before the deployment and then the deployment. And then while there, uh, you know, calling back to state leadership and, you know, what's next and, well, you know, we're not really sure if there's other opportunities, feel free to, you know, check them out. So I talked to my husband and I said, you know, what do you think we should do? Uh, do you want me to look for other opportunities? And he's like, yeah, sure. Um, and at that point it was the mortgage industry was not real good. It's the turnaround uh, so, in 2008. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I never thought that he would be, you know, open to leaving the state of Maine but he was. And so, um, put in for that position out there, <laughs> no idea what I was doing. Um, but again, it was a great opportunity and it was the foundations for emergency management, um, which I absolutely loved when I started taking the training and working not only there at the United States Northern command, but most importantly with back in the States with the national guard, you know, primarily with the domestic operations teams within the state to work with their state counterparts for domestic emergencies and building the exercise program uh, across the country that helped test and uh, provide exercises for the regional uh, emergency management, state, local authorities, regional players, and, and building those exercises. And it was such an awesome opportunity to network and learn, um, meet other National Guard leaders, other state entities, got to travel to, you know, just probably 10 or 15 different states over an 11 month timeline and uh, understand and work the uh, exercise program, learn the incident management system within the federal side of the house, working with FEMA and all of the agency partners, and then had the opportunity to come back and, and lead that program here in the state of Maine for the vigilant guard that we had here in 2013. And people uh, may not realize that the National Guard in Maine, the, the Commissioner of Defense Veterans and Emergency Management, has under uh, their purview, it's a cabinet-level position. Uh, they supervise the National Guard, both the Air and Army National Guard, the Veteran Services, and the main emergency management agency. So our listeners may not be aware of that, but that's that uh, natural or the, the connection between the Guard, very close connection between the Guard and emergency management. And it sounds like uh, the skills that you learned and developed through those assignments really were beneficial to the state and the nation. It, again, I mean, to be able to look back on it now and just it's so remarkable to see what I was doing in 2010, how it came into play when I was at Army North. But I just wanted to highlight to your point that absolutely, you know, not only is the Guard in support of you know, those local and, and state uh, agencies and partners. Um, but we have learned, you know, that uh, there's great ability to support many aspects of the state. And, and COVID was an opportunity for us 
us, the, the, the National Guard, to support our state partners in healthcare, in distribution, in, um, you know, nursing homes and um, immunizations and, and just um, just went on and on and on, obviously, uh, in terms of the opportunities for the Guard to partner and provide support to our local communities. And, and that's, I think, just highlights the importance of our citizens, soldiers that are those part-time folks that have their Monday through Friday job, but when called, will be there to support their state. And I, I can think back on my career, and I had some just re- really wonderful and rewarding times in, in uh, my time and on active duty with, with aviation. Some of the, the best times, and again, most rewarding times, were back here during the ice storm when we were su- supporting ice storm or other other disasters or other emergency situations in the state of Maine when when the Maine Guard really comes together and and shows the full uh, capabilities and and uh, uh, services that we can provide through to our citizens for sure you know and then I was able to interesting enough you know turn all of those experiences and opportunities into uh, Another opportunity when I was at Army North, um, not only to have worked at NORTHCOM, which was the higher headquarters for Army North, but to understand the emergency management, the defense support to civil authorities, and then to be in a um, Army service component command that is doing that for the entire country for all aspects of wildfire, floods, covid hurricanes, um, the border security, and all of it at the same time, and uh, work for some amazing leaders and with some some great um, partners there at in San Antonio. And that's a, that's a real credit to you and a real credit to uh, the the assignments that the work you did and the assignments that you had building to that because that because that's it that's really uh, something for the, the main national guard to have you on the staff down there reporting to the commanding general four star general through a three star four star? so she was a three star at the time so it's, it was lieutenant general laura richardson and i have to you know really sing her praises what an incredible leader and um while i was there she was confirmed um as the first four star uh combatant commander obviously uh female um, so we had General Dunworthy in uh, 2008 as the fourth star for, um, uh, let's, oh, geez, Transcom. I'm losing it now. Uh, anyways, so General Dunwoody uh, was the first four star and then Laura Richardson, the first uh, combatant commander, um, Army. And uh, just amazing leader. And to be ha- able to sit and watch her and sit next to her at the table. Um, as we, the other uh, key thing that was happening at Army North while I was there was the reception of um, the special uh, immigration uh, folks from Afghanistan. So all the folks that were working on visas at the fall of uh, the airport, 75,000 Afghans were 
uh, brought into the U.S. in about a month and a half. Oh, and nice. it was an Army, Army North staff. So just like the surge in Afghanistan, where we were building out those small uh, company-level bases, very similar thing was happening at Army North is we were building out 10 different stateside locations to receive work with in support of the Department of State because it was a uh, DOS mission. So um, DOD was providing that support at 10 different installations and Army North was the, you know, uh, key agency that was building those support packages. Everything from housing, you know, the different installations were either, you know, 5,000, 7,500, 10,000, 15,000 and receiving, you know, upwards of 2,000 people a night. And those, those, it's, it's a shame. Those, those sorts of things don't get reported mm. uh, in the news as much as the, <laughs> they focus on things that, uh, you know, the negative more than, than really the positive of what we did, the enormity of that, of that whole uh, operation to bring those people in. For sure, you know, and to be able to um, represent, and so I was the the forward edge for the commander. So she sent me um, a, uh, on a ten day rotation to those different installations to be her eyes and ears, and to um, make sure that the, the not only were the operations given all the resources and the support, but we were doing the best by our guests and supporting the Department of State with the onward movement in the integration of our Afghan partners back into the communities. And so to be there on, you know, the first day that the planes were landed and to see the Afghan families and the children, um, you know, touch U.S. soil and and know that they were free and that they were safe um, and to listen to the young women who said, you know, they just wanted to go to school, they wanted to be doctors, they wanted to be educators, um, and, and that was their dreams, and we were a part of helping those dreams come true. And a very, very rewarding experience. And that and that was, uh, you were sort of, uh, for, pardon the expression, but you were on loan sort of from, from the main, the main guard. You, from yes. your assignment, it, you know, I kind of skipped over. You, you had rolling into the the chief of staff position, and then took over as the assistant adjutant general uh, for Army, which basically uh, you're the commander of the Army National Guard in Maine. Uh, Two thousand thirty three soldiers thereabouts, um, with thirty eight Army National Guard units in Maine. But during that assignment, the last part of your assignment, that was when you did the rotation to Army North that you just described. And again, so we've traced this, this career with Diane from, you know, what we uh, label in the military as tactical operational strategic. So she started out at the tactical level level as a platoon leader and, and worked way up through staff positions and in the operations and then bridged to now she's at the a culmination of her career at the strategic level. And one of the great, educational experiences that I was fortunate to have as well was the U.S. Army War College uh, experience. Uh, grueling. We both did it from the distance learning perspective. Mm. And I think that's harder than doing the 
the uh, <laughs> resident. But absolutely, we didn't play golf. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But it's a tremendous education. That also, she, as I mentioned, she received a master's of strategic studies. Uh, it's one of the most. Uh, it was one of the most challenging but rewarding educational experiences that I've uh, I've ever had. How did you feel about that? Oh, it was such a steep learning curve for me because, um, you know, I, I was old enough that I had done the yellow books and many listeners that ha- might have, you know, worn a uniform will understand that a correspondence courses, um, for a couple of the other, um, command and general staff colleges. And so they had not done, they hadn't changed the curriculum for that intermediate level military education, uh, for that field grade. I didn't have that where they really focused on making sure people understood the critical thinking that you need um, as you navigate through, you know, the upper end of your career. So for me, it went from, you know, multiple choice, find the answer in a yellow book to those strategic level, um, you know, challenging discussions and um, uh, the blackboard using the, I mean, this was a very early on in the digital age, really, mm-hmm. um, long before Zoom and and <laughs> long before Skype, even I think. Um, so we did do some of our coursework, you know, over whatever platforms we had at the time, um, where you had to, you know, type into the uh, the chat or the message board and and offer your um, insight and opinions. And so that was very. Uh, steep learning curve for me. It wasn't something that I had really done. Uh, yes, I had done my master's in public administration and, you know, added commentary on, you know, uh, some HR practices. But for me, I was, I am not a student of military history. I am not a student of um, other services. And so er- everything that we did at that level, I had to, you know, start from kindergarten basically and understand and, uh, what the, the, you know, foundation was even, you know, uh, trying to get for the learning objectives, uh, where some people could roll right in there and already was, you know, fairly fluent in some of the, the theories that uh, were taught at that strategic level. It's re- yeah. And it's about, it's about critical thinking, really teaching mm-hmm. us to think critically, to write critically mm-hmm. and write concisely <laughs> and all of those <laughs> sorts of things. So it's just a great course. So you, what brings us to really where you, you are today, you retired and you took a position, uh, as I mentioned, you're the Senior Advisor to the President for Special Initiatives. Tell us a little bit about that role. It's just a, what a prize, really. I I pinch myself every day to say, really, is this, you know, I I don't call this a, you know, J-O-B, that's for sure. Um, It's an opportunity and it's a blessing to be able to be on campus. Um, I'm very proud of the fact of being a local um, and, and being an alum. Uh, that doesn't normally happen at that level within the university. Um, I, I'm hopeful that, you know, we can highlight and um, get more senior folks that will, you know, live, work, and play in Maine and uh, graduate and go back to the university at some of those senior levels. Um, but again, it's, it was, it's not a common practice. They do a lot of recruitment outside of the state. 
Um, so the fact that I understood where campus was and knew how to get around and actually, you know, worked there for three years, was a student there, um, two children um, have been students there, uh, was unusual. And you mentioned at your retirement ceremony, and I thought this was a great message for the people that particularly the, the uh, folks that are still in the military, the value of the experiences of the military and how they'll help you if you think about them and, and, and you value them, how they can help you in civilian world. And you use yes. an example from your current position. Yeah. And I can use another one just from today. So um, just to back up a little bit, what do I do? Um, it's many special projects and it's a lot of a, uh, like a project manager in the civilian world. And there were some key initiatives that the president had wanted to put in place and were negative, or I shouldn't say negatively, were stalled because of COVID. And and she has worked really hard to build her team and, and get things reignited. And that was really her insight into building this position was someone that she could say, hey, I need you to go get this moving or get this group together and come back with a recommendation and so it's a lot of project management, defining the problem, figuring out, you know, what the recommendations are using the military decision-making process, but using civilian terms for it all day long. Um, but all those skills, whether it's facilities management, you know, being a part of the National Guard and, and being on some design teams for uh, military new construction and understanding that, again, that's not something that is typical for you know, every army officer, particularly those on active duty, if that, unless that's their branch, but here in the guard, you know, we get to, um, be, um, multifunctional and understand those. For instance, today I was a part of a, uh, security meeting for the design of a new engineering building and university of Maine is now an R1 institution. It's a ranking from uh, Carnegie Institute, one of 168 universities nationwide that has that ranking. And because of the level of research and the quality that the University of Maine offers, and in the near future, there will be a new engineering building. And many of the grants and uh, different research programs that they do have some connection to the Department of Defense. And some of those are for um, different research projects that may have different levels of security classification. So being able to understand working in secure environments and, and also being a part of building design, uh, the Camp Chamberlain in Augusta, and understanding how we had to build secure rooms and what those specifications were for, afforded me the opportunity to be a partner in this meeting today on behalf of the president to make sure that as we work with a um, design team that we are forward thinking and design the not maybe you know the entire building but adequate space to meet potential uh, DOD requirements and so Again, you wouldn't necessarily think that that skill set you might learn and develop in the military is transferable, but I can point to probably three or four things a day that I have some type of uh, experience or knowledge from my opportunities within the military, and, and those are now 
you know, easily transfer to my new assignment. I think that's a that's a great point. That as you said, that unless you're on active duty, unless you're working in in uh, engine in the engineer corps, the civilian, uh, uh, the not civilian engineers. I'm trying to think of the branch, but the Corps of Engineers. Right. You're probably not going to do a lot of or have a lot of roles with building construction, but in the National Guard, you were probably there, I, I want to say hundreds of millions of dollars of facilities. I'm thinking of some of those newer facilities, including Camp Chamberlain. So, Right. And the Regional Training Institute, that was right. really where I cut, cut my teeth with our you know, facilities guys when it came to uh, building design and understanding the whole scope of work and, you know, 35% design build and, and, you know, all the way through. And interesting enough, it's the exact same process on the civilian side. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the design team coming in and meeting with a customer and figuring out how the, the building will be used and what the flow is and what the criteria are. And so in this particular case, you know, a re, an engineering research lab that his potential has future work with the DOD. Um, it, you know, we spent time today talking about the challenges of, um, you know, how you do that in a university setting where you have um, foreign national students and foreign national employees. And then, you know, some of these are U.S. only uh, type uh, programs and being able to understand that, appreciate that and work within it is Hopefully what, uh, you know, the, the president saw in, in the hiring and the, the skills that I bring to the table. Well, as a, as a UMaine grad myself and uh, somebody who's had three out of my four graduate from UMaine and one, I'm so happy that she had the foresight and recognized the talent that was available uh, with you there, Diane. Uh, just a couple more things. I know this is this is one of those podcast where I feel like I could go on forever. I know you're probably exhausted. You worked and drove for a long day today, but just what motivates you on a, on a daily basis to keep doing again, 33 years in the military, all the, all the other uh, incredible jobs that you've done, your family, raising a great family with your husband, Jim, what motivates you on a daily basis? Um, well, it's interesting you asked that because, um, I've sort of had to reflect on this a little bit for a, a future um, speaking engagement that's coming up. Um, and so when I saw the question, I thought, oh, this this just came to me. And, and I love the fact that I do have the commute because it really gives me the white space to, to think about certain things and sort of, you know, mull things over in my, in my head. Um, but it, what motivates me, obviously, is my faith, my family and freedom. And, uh, you know, I shared that with uh, Chaplain Weigel a couple of days or a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, Chappie, this is, this is what I thought about on my way to work today. And, uh, you know, pulling together some remarks um, for a, a future event. And that was, you know, a very concise way of um, thinking about it because, that is is what keeps me going every single day. And when things do get a little overwhelming, I think it's important to remember, um, you know, that we're we're we can't do it by ourselves. And uh, I, I, you know, very much rely on my faith um, to be that you know backbone and that foundation uh, for why I do things and how I do things. And it's not you know, it's not always my words, and it's not always my my strength or my power. And um, being able to 
um, do that for my family, with my family, and know that my family is, um, you know, just unconditionally supportive of everything that I do um, makes me want to continue to, you know, do things for them and with them. And um, well, that's a great that's a great message that I think uh, we all all should take to heart. And and I think it's a message that you know, I, my my last question was going to be. What advice would you give to a 2020, a 2022 graduate from Houghton or University of Maine? My son's graduating in a couple of weeks from the University of Maine. What would you give for advice uh, to them about yeah. how to be successful in your career? I have, I, I think there's probably like three key areas. Um, I, I, I was thinking about this and I had one thought and then I reflected back on, on, you know, what has been most helpful? What has been like that guide path? And it's the career development sheet, you know, and I don't know if you guys do anything like that in the civilian sector, but for me, I still have it. And it was something that um, Colonel LaPointe, had us do back in the old days at the old 286 down in Gardner. And so it was basically a sheet of paper. It listed out the year. It listed out your rank. It listed out the position you had. It listed out your civilian uh, academic, your military academic, and your family. And you basically, you know, wrote down a career path uh, wish list. And um, I remember I still have that piece of paper. And I use that as a wonderful tool uh, for many people, uh, you know, NCOs, um, junior enlisted, and junior officers to help, you know, make a dream sheet where even if, you know, you don't accomplish all of it, um, it at least helps you uh, think through some of those things. And, and for me, it wasn't necessarily that I knew every position. But you could calculate, um, you know, when you needed military education, when you were going to fit in civilian education, you know, and uh, building the family and those type of things. So the other thing that I would talk about is that balance and uh, um, always remembering that there are different times in your life when you have more to give. and. you know, I, I might have stolen that from a, another um, mentor that, uh, you know, um, for me, it was that time where I off-ramped in 2005. And, you know, that was that work-life balance and, uh, and understanding you're going to have peaks and valleys and you can give some um, more at different times in your life. And uh, I think that's really, really, really important to um, people to understand particularly the traditional guardsmen, that we have a civilian employer that we are obligated to make sure that we're giving the best to and finding that balance with our military careers. But And then the other thing is um, constantly resetting the bar. You know, um, when you have that career development sheet and you achieve a goal, it's, you know, okay, now how are you going to push the bar further? And if a door happens to be closed, then look for a window. Um, you know, nothing says that you can only 
achieve those goals in, in one, you know, direction. Um, and I have had the grace from many leaders to, you know, be unconventional about that path and, you know, take some time back and go forward um, and never, never stop building that career path and those dreams um, and read, read, read and learn and grow. Those, you know. That's awesome. A, a tremendous words of wisdom for anybody listening. And I hope that, uh, I hope that many will, will take those to heart. Uh, career development sheet, balance, constantly reset the bar. It's, you know, setting a path uh, and you know, the path's going to change some, but if you start with a path, at least you're, You've got a direction to head in, and you're not just floundering at at uh, where the winds are. <laughs> so I I really uh, 33 years in the military, Diane, uh, reaching the rank of brigadier general, now a, a tremendous position at the University of Maine. All the people you've touched and mentored, and I just want to congratulate you again on a on an outstanding career. I'm proud and honored to be uh, a peer of yours, uh, another retired general. I couldn't be uh, more proud to be part of that uh, that faculty, if you will, that group. And I want to thank you for taking the time today with us and sharing your wisdom and your insight on leadership and all the things that uh, have motivated you through the career, through your career. Well, thank you. I think it's, you know, I don't want to take this opportunity to thank you as well, because what we didn't really talk about are those different touch points throughout that period of time, um, you know, where you were that person that I was able to go to to ask questions and, and get support from. And, um, you know, that might have been across the hallway or, you know, in Augusta or wherever. But um, it's because of great leaders like you that, you know, um, I'm here and that is inspiring to me as an individual to uh, remember that and remember that every engagement that we have with, you know, someone else that might be a little more junior, um, that it is impactful and, and every moment counts. And so I appreciate those times and, and lessons that you were there to help offer along the way. Well, I um, certainly thank you for those comments, and uh, I hope in some small way I've I helped along the way with you and and others that uh, I worked with, and I certainly uh, again appreciate the time, uh, Diane Dunn. I know you're not done <laughs> with your career. You've got uh, you've got great things to uh, to achieve going forward, and hopefully, maybe we can talk again in the near future. Uh, after you've had some time and, and tell us more about what's going on at the University of Maine. That would be great. I would love it. Thank, Thank you. Thanks again. Well, this is Rob Carmichael again with our Mainly Matters podcast on business and leadership. Please join me again in the very near future. Mm-hmm.